For those of you who are here a couple weeks ago, you remember that Chad, who just gave our announcements very ably, Chad started a new section in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew. You can begin turning there, chapter 6 of Matthew. So in this chapter, we have a trifecta, if you will, of topics. Uh, First of all, Chad mentioned giving to the poor. Uh, Today I'll be talking about prayer. And then we have a third message in this section of Matthew chapter 6 on fasting. In all three of these sections, Jesus speaks to the heart of the matter, so to speak. Jesus speaks to the heart of the matter by focusing on the heart intention and the attitude of the disciple in doing these good things. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto of sorts. It's an explanation. It's a a detailed discussion on the life of a disciple, of life in God's kingdom. And so Jesus, in verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 6, says that when we give to the poor, we are not to do it in a way that draws glory to ourselves. He goes so far as to say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is giving. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is giving. And unless there's a, a bad medical issue, that's not really possible. But the, the strangeness, the uniqueness of that illustration goes to show how important it is in Jesus' eyes, in God's eyes, that we do not do these good things to be seen by men. Now, because um, I appreciated Chad's message and because I'm, I'm weird this way, I continued thinking of some ways that 21st century Christians can somewhat rationalize that passage. You know, that passage talked about going in the streets and blowing a trumpet as you're giving to the poor. Now, who among us would ever blow a trumpet to talk about the good things that we are doing? I mean, we might practically use a megaphone and say, poor people, here comes the food, you know, homeless people, here comes the shelter. But Jesus, of course, is talking about the deceitful heart within every human being, a desire to be the center of attention, to be lauded, to be praised. Now, we know that our brother Chad is no impulsive chaser of trends. He's no follower of fads. So he has yet to adopt social networking along with the rest of the 21st century. Uh, he, he's not exactly, he has an iPhone, but it may or may not be true that we have to send U.S. postal mail to his house when we want to meet with him. But he used in, in that message an illustration of how Christians today, we can use tweets and Facebook status updates and check-ins to kind of demonstrate our righteousness. So I found some non-inspirational thoughts this week. Um, it, it may be helpful. It may be not helpful. But um, I found these on the, the website, Stuff Christians Like, of ways that Christians can humble brag in our use of social media. And I only offer this not to augment Chad's message, but to help us get in this mindset, since it was two weeks ago, of what hypocritical living can look like. So a couple of excellent, well-crafted, humble brag status updates. I was just reading about doing good deeds this morning during my four and a half hours of quiet time while sipping coffee that I purchased while on mission in a mountain village in Guatemala. Oh, here's another one. Isn't it hilarious when you come to church on Christmas only to find that half of the congregation decided to stay home? You get the subtlety there? I showed up. I'm usually too busy getting up early, lying prostrate on the cold kitchen floor and praying to brag about my good deeds on social media. 
And here's one that's very brief, but very to the point and very unassailable in its righteousness. Just gave a kidney, headed into work. (laughs) Now, hypocrisy is in all of us. It's irritating to experience it in others, but it's in all of us. And Christ speaks to us in this chapter of actions and attitudes that hypocrites have. And he's calling us to examine our own hearts. And as he says, do not as the hypocrites do. Do not as the hypocrites do. But why is there such a focus on Christians being hypocrites, of religious people being hypocrites? Don't we find hypocrites in every walk of life? Don't we run into hypocrites at work? You may have a coworker who acts a certain way when the manager is around and talks a certain way when the boss is there, but as soon as the boss is gone, the emotions change, the attitude, the words that that person may use about that manager change. We know hypocrites in school. There may be other kids who pretend to be your friend, but they may be talking about you in a derogatory way when they think you're not listening if it serves their purpose to climb the social ladder in school. That's a little hard to apply to homeschool if, you know, unless you have a lot of siblings and then there's a whole social structure there too. Politicians and lawyers um, have a reputation for being hypocrites, um, whether it's fair or not. Uh, we, we shouldn't paint with a broad brush, but what specifically do we mean when we say someone is a hypocrite? So I offer a couple of definitions here. Hypocrites are people who know one thing and act in a different way. Hypocrites may know what is right, but they act differently. A common phrase is hypocrites talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And yes, we do find hypocrites in church. In fact, the very common objection to church and to Christians and to religion that that other people may raise if you invite them to church, they may say, church is full of hypocrites. That's why I don't believe in organized religion. You only have to turn to the Internet, Chad, Internet, news articles on the Internet about churches in turmoil. And you look at the comments and you see people just jumping on. The comment pages are full of people saying, that's why I will never set foot in a church again, because Christians are hypocrites. Now, that's not exactly a fair or always a logical position to take. As I pointed out, all of life brings us into contact with hypocrisy in one form or another. But for now... Let's turn the scripture onto ourselves. Let's see what we can learn for ourselves. Most of us here are professing believers, perhaps. Most of us would agree that hypocrisy can be a prevalent problem in the body of Christ. That's why we should apply our hearts and our ears when Jesus speaks to us as disciples in this chapter and says, don't do that. Don't do like the hypocrites. Don't be a hypocrite. As we look at Matthew chapter 6 today, I trust that the scripture will show us some of the characteristics of hypocrisy, especially in the special area of prayer. In so doing, we can pray that the Holy Spirit will bring areas of our life to light that we can take to God for healing, for repair, for change, so that we might be useful tools for him to use. This is a challenging topic. Any message on prayer makes a pastor start thinking real hard about how he's going to pray during that service in particular. And this message has had that effect on me. 
messages on prayer can induce people to withdraw and say, I ain't never going to pray in front of nobody ever again. When you're that fearful, your grammar just goes right out the window. But um, it, it can make you say, I'm not praying. You know, I wasn't prone to pray in public before, but I am definitely not going to anymore since you know, we're introducing these ways that people can judge me for my praying. Charles Spurgeon, pastor from a couple centuries ago in the U.K., had this quote. He said, I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than anything else I do. I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than anything else I do. Not to elevate Spurgeon to too high a level, but this was a man of God used greatly in his country and around the world. Even today, his messages, his recordings, his books continue to bless Christians today with their depth of biblical truth and their eloquence. But even Charles Spurgeon was quick to highlight that deficiency in his spiritual discipline. So even for us today, we get together. This is a sure way to end the conversation is to say, hey, how's your prayer life? It's like, okay, I I think my wife is calling me. We got to go. It's not a topic of comfort. But I hope that as we do go into this passage today and as we look into the Lord's table, Lord's prayer in the next couple of weeks and as the elders and the preaching team have are preparing on a, a multi-week study on prayer. So we're going to be on this topic for about seven or eight weeks. I hope that God changes something in all of us. I know that I need change in this area of prayer. So my purpose today is not is not to create an atmosphere where we are hyper-analyzing our past and our future prayers or hyper-analyzing our past prayers and definitely planning never to have any future prayers in public that anybody can hear. I really would ask you not to do that for anybody that's going to be praying today, like myself. But instead of the possible natural tendency which we might have, which is to withdraw from prayer, I would beseech you, I would beg you to Allow our Father God to gently draw you unto himself. I pray that there will be comfort in this text rather than condemnation. I pray that this message will, for all of us, have us saying, Lord, teach us to pray. As the disciples did in Luke chapter 11, the, the Luke event rendition of this event. Prayer is not an option for the believer. Prayer is not a litmus test or a a symptom that we look for, that a put-on thing that Christians should add to their lives just to prove that they're Christians. Prayer is the lifeblood of the believer's relationship with his God. Jesus says in this passage, he says, when you pray, not a if you pray, there's a divine assumption that we as disciples, we will pray, we will communicate with our God. And today he starts by showing us how to pray by highlighting two ways that we two ways that we should not pray. So you're at Matthew chapter six and verse five. We're going to read four verses. Matthew chapter six, verses five through eight. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Matthew 6, 5-8. through 8. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before You with Your Word open before us, and we pray that You will show more of Yourself to us today, not in a way that causes us to despair, but in a way that makes us love You more and want to commune with You more. We pray that we will learn, but not in just an intellectual way. We pray that we will take to heart what Your Son preached so many years ago and what is written in Your Word that if sins are exposed in our life, we will be quick to run to the cross and we will repent of that. But we we thank you, Father, that in your word there is life and there is hope and in you there is forgiveness. And we pray that as we study this wonderful aspect of our relationship with you, of communing with you in prayer, as we embark on this study as a church and as a preaching team, that you will do a mighty work in our church body and in our lives. And we will begin to see the blessings for those who do not pray often, that we will begin to see the blessings of that uh, communion with you. For those who do pray regularly, that they will have their love for you reinvigorated and refreshed. And they will, they will see how, how sweet it has been and how sweet it will be until we are in heaven and communing with you forever. But Father, today I pray that what you have for us in your word will be illuminated to us, and we will have the openness to receive that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my first point is that we should pray for the right reason. We should pray for the right reason, we should pray with the right words, and we should pray to the right person. So praying for the right reason... The essence of prayer that I've referred to a few times already is communion with God. And yet Jesus describes hypocrites here in Matthew chapter 6 as those who love to pray standing and when in the synagogues and on the street corners in public. Our first point is that disciples should pray for the right reason. A paraphrase of that might be don't pray for show. Don't pray ostentatiously. Don't pray in a showy manner for the eyes of others. Now, is God calling us here never to pray in public or not to pray in a standing posture? I just did both. But now we look through the rest of Scripture to see that this Matt, to see if this Matthew 6 passage, is it a prohibition against these things? If we look throughout Scripture, we see examples of Christ praying at times in front of his disciples, in front of other people. We see examples of the apostles praying in the synagogue or praying in public. So I think it's clear from the rest of Scripture that the behavior being questioned here is not against standing or against being in public or being around other people. In fact, haven't you been blessed in your walk by hearing other people pray? Hasn't it been an encouragement to gather together in community groups and hear others pray? Don't you really get to know someone better by hearing them pray? You hear more about their walk with God and their love for Christ and the, and the affection that they have for God. And sometimes you can tell when there's been years of walking along with God 
And even in the midst of turmoil, there is there are Ebenezer's, there are milestones in their past that they remember God was faithful and that strengthens them now. Doesn't that encourage you? There's encouragement that comes from sharing in prayer. There's edification that flows out to those around you when you pray. There are examples that we set in our prayers for our families, both good and bad, for our children, for fellow believers in the manner in which we pray. There's also a practical benefit. Sometimes if you pray alone in private, your mind can drift. You start to think of other things, but maybe when you pray together with other people, you're able to have them lead you to the throne of God in their prayers, and you're able to focus. And when your turn comes to pray, you focus on what you're saying too. But So there are benefits for sure in praying together and praying in public, so to speak. So the problem here in this passage is not just standing or praying in public. The problem is the reason or the motivation for the praying. These hypocrites are praying that they may be seen by others. How perverse is this? The essence of praying is to communicate with God, to build our relationship with God, to have true communion with God. And yet we can be hypocritical and take something that precious, something as precious as communication with our creator, and we do it for the attention of other created beings, be they believers or not. So I asked the guys on our Thursday night meeting as we were preparing for this message, I said, what motivates hypocrisy? Why do we, why do humans tend to uh, or pretend to be something that we are not? Why do we do things that run counter to, that do not make sense with what we know to be true and right? Sometimes we do this because we're seeking the approval of others. We are seeking to be liked. We are seeking to have people respect us. There may also be a fear of not fitting in, so we may act a certain way even though we know it to be counter to what is truth. I think that by extension here, we can see that in praying with the wrong motivation, for the wrong reason, we are showing a lack of understanding and vision of our standing before God. Our standing before God does not correlate with our standing before man, before other people. Our standing before God does not correlate with our standing before men. We cannot elevate our standing before God by getting other people, even Christians, to like us more or for them to think that we are more spiritual. God knows the truth. God knows our heart. We're not fooling him. Christ says, For those who would pray in this manner, who would pray in public to be seen by others, this is all the reward that they're going to get. This is all the reward they're going to get. It's a little bit of a sharp message that Christ is bringing. But he said, if you want accolades, if you want praise here on earth for falsely motivated prayer, that's the reward you're going to get. Whatever you can conjure up, whatever you can fool people into believing about you, that's the reward you're going to get. Maybe there was a time even when you consider the hypocrite in this uh, chapter 6 and verses of five and, 5 and 6, the hypocrite in this passage, he may have prayed a genuine, a genuine prayer, a genuine, heartfelt, real, honest prayer to God. And maybe when he finished, someone came to him after the service and said, you know, that was touching, that was eloquent, 
you know, the way you just painted the picture, you really connected all of us to God. These are all good things. To be able to lead a, a church body, a body of believers, and have them all praying together, those are good things. But maybe that person took that compliment that was meant to edify and said, huh, I'm glad somebody finally noticed. I've been really working at this thing, and I really have been trying to pray better, and I'm glad they finally noticed. Next time they ask me to pray, I'm going to up my game here and, and really show them what, what a good prayer is. We can think, we, the hypocrite, can think that he now has a standard, a reputation to build up. So that hypocrite can take that encouraging word from a fellow believer and turn it into a desire for man's praise, for man's respect, to be elevated in the eyes of others. His reward then becomes just that, temporary, in the big picture of eternity, meaningless approval from man, a reward with no eternal value. Please don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing to encourage fellow believers. I don't want us to now have an atmosphere where we never offer a word of blessing to someone saying, thank you for that song. Thank you for that prayer. Um, we, we want to encourage fellow believers. Encourage, Go ahead and encourage people by telling them that God used them. But if that prayer if that preacher starts to be motivated and starts to look for that, hey, I didn't, no one said anything. How bad was that message? Hmm. Um, if we start looking for that sort of acclamation, then hypocrisy is starting to creep in. And we should be aware of that in our praying, in our ministry before others in public. But in contrast with the hypocrites here, Christ sets a juxtaposition here of calling us to pray privately. He calls us to go into a room and shut the door. He tells us why we can have confidence in praying privately. This is not just a spiritual exercise. This is not just a spiritual ritual. This is a relationship that we have with our Creator. This is a relationship that we have with the Holy God, as we heard last week, who is not like us. This God who did not need us, who does not need us, ordained a plan to create us. And in spite of knowing that his creation, mankind, would betray him and turn his turn our backs on him and not love him, for no other reason, this God, this creator, for no other reason than his perplexing, makes no sense why he would do this sort of love for man, for no other reason but his love, this God devised a plan for providing a redeemer and savior through the death of his son. So this is the person that you're praying to. And Jesus says in this passage, Jesus says, disciples, you're praying to your father. I mean, he, the, the word is clear in, in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And he didn't say you pray to God, you pray to your creator. He said pray to your father. Disciples, you're praying to God, the supreme being, the holy creator of the world and everything that you know. This is your father. This is communion with your father. We should let that be of utmost importance to us. The most important emphasis when we pray is that we are talking to our father. 
I realize that for some in this room, because we live in a fallen world with fallen people, maybe this relationship of father and child is not a positive one. Okay, and and that is something that I I think we can overcome with God's grace. But for now, I would just want to assume for now, if if you consider the best dad that there could ever be, the best father there could ever be, that that's God our Father. Okay, and I'll talk a little more about why He's a better Father than anyone here on earth. So Jesus says, "Go into your room, pray to your Father, shut the door." Pray in secret. Pray in secret and have full assurance that your father, who is also in secret, he sees you. He hears you. And he will give you the reward and approval of your prayer with him. This emphasis, the fact that we are praying to our father, begins to help us understand how ridiculous it is to parade about and pray for the eyes of men. And keep in mind, sometimes it's not even the act of praying. We don't actually have to pray in front of people to try to get approval. We can sometimes talk about the hours of the hours that we've spent in prayer, just kind of drop it in conversation. In the third hour of prayer that I had this morning, I, I really feel like I connected and God showed me something. But to the to the point that I mentioned of this being ridiculous, this is bragging. This is bragging about doing a very important thing with a very important person, our Father, but to brag about it to unimportant people for their approval. We're taking a very important thing that we're doing with a very important person and bragging about it to unimportant people for their approval. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me theorize this way because it's not really an illustration yet. But say that I, as an ideal husband... Husband extraordinaire, prime catch, Lisa's so lucky. I celebrate my wedding anniversary with my wife. I do it all right. It's a mild surprise, but not something that will freak her out and inconvenience her. I chose a dinner at a properly chosen restaurant, which is great cuisine, but not too expensive. I love my practical wife. Uh, A getaway, but I made sure I used a Groupon to save money. Overall, the verdict for this anniversary celebration is just complete awesomeness. And throughout this entire project, this entire event, my main concern is getting back to my work at the software company and telling the guys there how good it went. I want to go back to them and and I'm telling them how great the food was and how I worked out all the timing perfectly and how I selected and you know, all the things you have to choose, the food, the drink, the flowers, just right. No doubt my socially dysfunctional, slightly disinterested fellow engineer would say, well, how did she like it? And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know. I don't remember. I just I want to make sure that you understand how impressive I am as a husband. Whether or not my wife was blessed or whether it was a joyful celebration, that, that doesn't matter to me. I need to be, I'm very concerned with what you think of me. It doesn't make sense, right? The juxtaposition of the that we have in this passage of public, look at me sort of prayers, juxtaposed, Jesus juxtaposes it against private shut the door prayer. It is meant to emphasize that our focus should be on God. 
the right reason for praying is to commune with God. That doesn't mean that we never pray in public. Let me inject one note of concern that may apply to many of us here. There's not a biblical prescription of how much public prayer and how much private prayer we have. There's not a a verse that says, for every two score minutes of prayer that thou utterest in public in the eyes of man, there must be four score minutes in the closed room. There's not a magic ratio. But consider whether there are days, perhaps all too frequent days, when your first prayer is at supper when you sit down with your family. Or maybe our prayer time is limited to prayers with the community group. A good thing. But our prayers are only limited to public times where we pray as a group. Or perhaps for those of us who lead in prayer here in the service, uh, the the preaching team, we pray regularly. Um, For those uh, who lead in worship, they, they may pray regularly in public. That should not be our sole mode of prayer. Our communion with God is for a greater purpose, not to have some sort of ratio of minutes spent in prayer or in private, in public or in private, but so that we might commune with God and and get to know him more and take, set our lives before our Father. Our focus should be on praying with confidence to our Father. We should also pray with the right words. Look back to the text, the last two verses, uh, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, this um, outline point is not meant to be a scary one. This is not, uh, you know, pray with the right words, and from now on all prayers will be judged by this point. Perhaps a better outline point would have been, don't pray mechanically. Don't don't pray in a ritualistic manner. Pray from your heart with genuine words that you mean. I love the the, the phrase the, the the expression that Jesus uses in verse seven where he says, Do not heap up empty phrases. A heap of empty phrases. That's a really great word picture. Use it in your next bad meeting at work or use it in your next argument. You can tell somebody, you don't bring anything to this conversation except a heap of empty phrases. That, that'll win. No, no, it won't. Don't use that. But does this text mean that we should never use repetitive words ever when we pray? Some have interpreted this passage to mean that we should not pray written prayers, that each prayer that we pray should be unique and made up on the spot. We can look again at the rest of Scripture to get enlightenment on this interpretation. Many of the Psalms are prayers that God's people prayed, that he had them write down so they would pray again. There are even repetitive Psalms, like Psalm 136 is the most obvious example of repetition, where the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, is mentioned 26 times in this Psalm. Here at Grace and Truth, we we often read from the book of Puritan prayers entitled Valley of Vision, And we are blessed by Christians who have lived before us, who have captured many of the struggles and many of the victories and thanksgiving that we encountered during our earthly walk. 
And we can be drawn closer to God by reading and praying those prayers. Perhaps the most beneficial example of praying a written prayer are in the verses that follow where Jesus teaches us to pray by giving us the Lord's Prayer, which he then tells us to pray. So repetition alone does not an empty phrase heap make. But when Jesus in in these two verses talks about praying with a heap of empty phrases, he's referring to the Gentiles or the pagans. He's no doubt referring to pagans like the in the Old Testament, the prophets of Baal who went head to head with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let me just read a little bit from that passage. So this is um, the prophets of Baal who served Jezebel, went, uh, met at Mount Carmel for a showdown on whose God Israel is going to serve. And then Elijah in verse 25 says to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So in this passage, we can see that those prophets who worshipped a false god prayed all day to Baal and there was no result. In other religions, even in modern days, an example that we can consider is Buddhism. In Buddhism, they are very upfront about emphasizing the use of mantras for prayer and meditation. Buddhists use a thing called a prayer wheel. I don't know if you've seen one in a movie or something, but um, if you have a post, part of the post is, is, uh, is loose from the rest of the wood and you can spin it. And, and um, as, as you're going into this Buddhist temple, they'll have many of these prayer wheels in the pillars of the, or the walls. And, and as you walk by, you, you spin the prayer wheel and you, and you say your mantra. And what, what's interesting is that um, I found one Buddhist website that sold specially sanctioned Dalai Lama prayer wheels. These were prayer, and they, they emphasize the fact that inside these prayer wheels, you put mantras written out on paper and the more mantras that are inside the prayer wheel and you spin the prayer wheel as you're saying the mantra the more mantras that are inside that prayer wheel the more effective your meditation will be the more effective your prayer will be so this one website not only had dalai lama but they had the concept of micro printing so they could print the mantra very small in very small text and put thousands of mantras inside their prayer wheels and so you got a lot more bang for your buck if you ordered from them. This is not, I don't know if there's anyone here with a Buddhist background, but this sounds very strange to us, maybe who grew up in evangelical Christianity. But the more phrases, the more mantras, the more you chant, the more enlightened you will be, the more quickly your peace will come. These are modern day heaps of empty phrases. 
These mantras, this chanting, these are important for manipulating their gods. The believers, uh, the prophets of Baal believe that the more they cried out, the more they cut themselves, the more they sacrificed, the more their God would love them and respond to their request. Believers of the one true God are not to pray in this manner. We are not to pray as if we can manipulate God if we just chant something long enough or if we cut ourselves. As a side observation, I would say that in evangelical churches, we can be guilty of using empty phrases at times. It may not be as blatantly heaping up empty phrases as Buddhists, but hear me out and please understand that when I'm speaking to this topic, I'm including myself. Again, I don't want us to hyperanalyze our prayers, but I do want us to be careful not to use empty phrases as fillers in our prayers. For example, there's nothing wrong with opening your prayer by thanking God for the day, as long as you really mean it. You know, that was one of the first things I learned you know, as a child, when you're learning to pray, and you're just adding things in that you've heard other people say. And some people say, Dear Heavenly Father, dear God, um, Father, our Father who art in heaven. And you pick one that you like. And then the next thing is like, Thank you for this day. It's kind of like when we used to write letters, like we do to Chad. You say, um, Dear Chad, how are you? And then you're like, Now what do I write? But so sometimes when we pray, we do. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the day. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you really are thankful for that day. Some of the filler prayers that, at least in American Christianity, that we've developed are both empty and slightly odd. Are you familiar with, please bless this food and the hands that prepared it? As Tim Hawkins, the Christian comedian, says, why not the whole body? Why not the whole person? Just bless the hands. Let this food nourish our bodies and our bodies to your service. Again, the great theologian Tim Hawkins mentioned, you know, sometimes we are praying this while we're eating a bag of Cheetos and a super big gulp of Dr. Pepper. Let this be nourishment to our bodies. This is a miracle that is not in the canon of Scripture, but it can stand up next to walking on water. When we pray, we should also be careful in using God's name, such as the word Lord, as punctuation. I feel okay saying this here because I think this is more of a problem in the South where I grew up, but we should not pray in this manner. Dear Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would be with all the sick folks, Lord, and Lord, you would bring them back to church soon, Lord. We ask that you would bless this food, I mean the offering, Lord, and multiply, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. Amen. That is taking the name of God and trivializing it as a comma, as a period, whereas we're trying to think of something else to say. These can be empty phrases. There's not a minimum acceptable length of prayers either. Haven't you been blessed often with a fellow believer's short, simple prayer? Even the Lord's Prayer is quite short by the 21st century American church standards. 
perhaps there's a correlation between long prayers that may be offered up in public that are full of empty phrases because we're praying to more impress people around us who are hearing our prayer rather than praying fixated on talking to our Father. Josh shared a quote with me as I was preparing this message. He shared a quote with me from David Platt's book, Radical, where Platt talks about prayers from Christians who have chosen the radical path of serving God with all their heart and soul and mind. Platt says their prayers were marked less by grandiose theological language and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh, God, thank you for loving us. Oh, God, we need you. Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust in you. Jesus continues in this passage to remind us as disciples that we are praying to our Father, and this good Father knows what we need before we ask it. The genuine, heartfelt words of our prayer are more important to our Heavenly Father than the form or the eloquence or the uniqueness of our prayer. Let us together ask for God's help in breaking ourselves of some of these habits that may have crept into our prayers. I venture to say that no one here says, I'm going to deliberately put some empty mantras into my prayer life. But instead, our prayers may have become riddled with empty phrases because we forget. We do not recognize the impact, the import of the person to whom we are praying. And that takes us to our final point. We need to pray to the right person. We pray to an audience of one, of one that matters. There may be other folks listening, but we pray to an audience of one. And I want to point out three aspects of God that we see in this passage and that, so that we can have our prayer life informed, rejuvenated, and made essential from our own perspective for our growth and so that we might thrive as children of God. We pray to a Father God, a secret God, and a knowing God. We pray to a Father God, a secret God, and a knowing God. I've already mentioned several aspects of praying to a Father. This is a Father God who will reward you and wants good things for you. This is not a cruel Father who's looking for ways to disqualify what you're saying. You asked that in the wrong way. So I found a loophole that allows me to withhold that from you. That's not our father. This is not a cruel father who will snap when we have selfishly asked for something that is not best for us. And so he decides to punish us by giving us what we ask for, like the earthly father who may get tired of constantly being asked for candy. And so this earthly father, this earthly sinful father would say, okay, if you want candy, that's all you're going to eat. That for the un, until you quit asking for candy, that's all the food you're going to eat. And the kids may say, yay, for a little while. But after a while, the sugar rushes just pile up and it's not enjoyable anymore. And that earthly father could say, it's going to take some time, but you're going to get tired of it. And then your teeth are going to rot out. And then they're going to have to drill into your teeth. And I'm going to be there to say, ha ha, I told you, you don't want candy all the time. That's not the type of father that we have that we pray to. We have a father that loves us and wants good things for us and knows what is best for us. We also have a secret God, a God from whom nothing is secret. He knows our intentions. 
He knows our heart attitude, even if we consider them to be hidden. The crux of this entire passage, of these three uh, points, the point is that hypocrites do things, even good things, with the wrong motive. Our secret God sees our motive, and he wants his disciples to do good things for him and his glory alone. And real joy and blessing and peace come to his children, disciples, when we seek that with our hearts as much as he does. Thirdly, this is a knowing God that we pray to. And here is blessed comfort for many. This God knows our needs and gives us what we should have before we even ask for it sometimes. We can have confidence when we pray. Aren't there times in your life where you don't even know what to pray for? This is like having a best friend with whom you can sometimes just sit alone, not talking, and they know you so well that they know how to pray for you, they know how to comfort you. A million times better than that earthly relationship is this relationship that we can have with our Father, with our knowing God. We can pray to Him and say, Father, You know what I need. Please help me. I am undone. I am overwhelmed. And all I can do is say, Help me, Father. And He is faithful. This knowing God does not disqualify a prayer because we didn't ask for every detailed element of our request. We don't have to try to manipulate our God with constant mantras that pummel him into doing our will as if that were even possible. You may ask the question, if God is knowing, if God is all-knowing and knows what we need before we ask it, then why pray at all? That's a fair question. And the answer lies in the fact that this God is not like us. Our logic does not make sense when we apply it to this this verse where it says that the, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Our logic does not make sense here, but I wanted to quote something from Ligon Duncan. He says, Biblical logic says, because God already knows, therefore I am moved, I am motivated, I am given all the more reason to pray. Why? Because God's knowledge reminds me of his care about the most minute problems of my life. And it encourages me to go to him because I am not going to go to the sovereign of the universe and meet the response. That's too insignificant for me. The sovereign of the universe already knows everything we need. He cares about that. And so we are motivated to go to him. God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, motivates us to go to him in prayer. His gospel omniscience reminds us that he knows everything that his children need. Our father sees in secret. He knows our need, and this motivates us to go to him. We are embarking on a series of messages on prayer, with the Lord's Prayer coming in the next couple of weeks, and then a series of messages on prayer after that that the preaching team is preparing as we've been discussing this, we, we mused about whether we have inadvertently made it difficult for people to pray here at Grace and Truth. Have we put 
set an expectation, perhaps, that there's a certain format that's good enough. We, we want God to move in our hearts, too, as church leaders, to lead properly, to give people, to, to set the right culture of prayer. Not so that we might receive accolades as, wow, grace and truth is a praying church, but so that God might look down on us and say, I am communing with those people. We want to pray corporately. It's biblical, even though we just read this passage about praying privately in a room. You'll see when we go into the Lord's Prayer, it says, Our Father. It doesn't say my Father. Our Father. Corporately, we are praying this. Our Father who art in heaven. God's people are meant to pray together as well as privately. And we want to help the church body see that a genuine, simple, heartfelt prayer is as biblical and perhaps more meaningful to God as an eloquent, theologically constructed prayer that might be prayed as part of a worship liturgy in leading our body before God. There's a place for both. Simple prayers can be such a blessing. Prayers that remind me of the depth of aspects of the gospel that perhaps I didn't think about. They can be like little mini-sermons to my heart as well. The important thing is our heart motivation. Again, maybe for the third time in this message, I will ask and pray for all of us that we will not hyperanalyze our prayers to an unhealthy extent, but instead that we would place our minds, our words, our prayers before God and ask him to transform us. Ask him to help us to refocus us on himself as the person to who we are praying. Ask him to draw us close to himself as a loving father who knows what we need and who wants what is good for us. Earlier I said that church frequently were accused in a church of being full of hypocrites. And a hypocrite is someone who does not act in a way consistent with his beliefs. So I would say, yes, church is full of Christians who are hypocrites. If you consider what are Christians called to do, Jesus put it most simply when he said Christians are to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. And there's no Christian in this room who has unfailingly followed that standard. There's no Christian here who has loved others as much as himself without fail. So, yes, we are Christians who sometimes, maybe even frequently, act in a way that is contrary to what we believe to be true, what we preach. We call this sin. We, we know this to be hypocrisy when we act in a way that's contrary to what God's word teaches. But Christians in the church are also not hypocrites in the same way that the world would define it because Christians who are walking with God admit when they have failed. Christians know through the Holy Spirit, when we have sinned. And a Christian seeking to glorify God will seek to be reconciled to God, will seek help and healing with God. See, the key to Christianity is not being able to live in a way that meets God's standards. The key to Christianity is not being able to live in a way that meets God's standards. The key is knowing that God forgives us when we fail to meet his standard. God still calls us to continually grow and become more like his son. Jesus came for failures. He did not come for the righteous. He came 
to rescue sinners. Jesus came because man failed at meeting God's standard in the garden and from then on. And God sent Jesus to bear the just punishment for that failure. There is that point of salvation that must come to every person when that person understands that he or she must depend solely on Christ's work on the cross, bearing the punishment for that person's sin. That work alone is what is required to have a right standing before God. There is ongoing forgiveness from God as Christians seek to walk as disciples and fail. And with that failure comes forgiveness. This forgiveness does not obviate the need to keep trying. God calls us to become more like him. God calls us to pursue holiness. But a Christian should not pretend that he is better than he is. Instead, he tries, he fails, God forgives and calls him to continue seeking after him, to continue to try to be more like Christ. And the glorious truth is that with our Father's ongoing forgiveness for our sins and failures when we come to him in repentance, with that forgiveness, he gives us a helper in the Spirit to empower and enable us. The church is full of hypocrites. However, the church is full of hypocrites who have come to God for repair and restoration and healing to be made new. If you're living a lie, whether that be putting on morality for whatever reason, when your heart is full of sin, or if you do not have a relationship with the Father so that you can pray with confidence and peace, I can tell you today that God knows what you need. He knows that you need a Savior. And that this first step, this is the first prayer that He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear you say, God, help me. Let's bow together. Father, for this church body, as a member of this body, as an elder here, I join with my brothers and sisters here and I say, Lord, please teach us to pray. For perhaps one of the greatest weaknesses for many of us, for whatever reason, we may have just grown up very busy with other more externally laudable and praiseable actions that brought us earthly happiness and respect. I believe that for many of us, our prayer lives are atrophied. We've done so much in our own strength and we are so tired. I pray that in the coming weeks, or even this week, that you would work in our hearts, that as we learn how to pray, as we learn what your word says about prayer, as we learn more about you as we study prayer, that you would transform us. We know that only you can make lasting change in our lives. And we don't do so out of guilt and sadness, Father. We want to know you more. We want to enjoy you more. We want to find our greatest pleasure in serving you and bringing your name glory. And Father, we just pray that this message, just scratching the surface, looking at this passage, that it would 
kindle a hunger within us to have our prayer life transformed. Again, that we might commune with you and see more of you and that we would be forever transformed by what we learn about you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.